0: Brought to you by CGTN Europe.
1: Welcome to The Agenda. I'm Stephen Cole. Space is being touted as the largest potential new marketplace since the Internet, with entrepreneurs and businesses looking eagerly for an alternative solution to Earth's problems. I spoke to the director of the UK's National Space Academy, Professor Anu Oja, as well as Dr Christoph Beichel. Research Fellow at the London Institute of Space Policy and Law. Also joining the conversation, we have Mitch Hunter Scullion, CEO of Asteroid Mining Corps, and the space journalist, Sarah crudus Sarah, what excites you about space that you write about it so much?
0: Um that's a that's a great question. I, I think um the best way to look at it is us as humans were curious, and it's that curiosity which built the modern world. We explored the world Uh, and you look back at Christopher Columbus sailing to America and that was almost the, um, you know, we had this Columbus moment and that's the same as what we're doing with space travel. So, we had government funded projects just like Christopher Columbus sailing to America, discovering the new world, helping to create the world we live in today. That was what we saw with Apollo, but now we're entering into a new era in terms of space exploration, which I like to compare with the Mayflower setting sail to America. And it's about private industry and business. And actually, space is no longer a place to go. It's a place to do business. It's an extension of life on Earth, and it's that innate curiosity that we all have, which is helping to drive forward our species into space, but also to bring real benefit back here to Earth. So, we're at an exciting cusp in terms of our species, where Earth can almost be thought of as a cave and we're leaving for the first time and it's a real start of a new era with benefits that we cannot even begin to imagine.
1: What occurs to me is watching the developments in space, how quickly we've gone from science fiction to space reality.
0: Well, that's true. I think science fiction should actually be renamed science prediction because all the (laughs) things, it's true though, all the things you can imagine eventually come true. Look at Da Vinci with helicopters and we eventually got those and then all the things you can't imagine, they come true also. And you look at someone born at the start of the, you know, in the 1900s and what they saw within their lifetime, the birth of flight, human beings going into space, setting foot on the moon and then the era of cyberspace at the end of that century. And now we look to this century and we can't even begin to imagine what is to come. And that's what's so incredible about space, you know, within this, you know, within the next few decades, we'll answer the question, are we alone? We will um, eventually see, hopefully in the next decade, humans returning to the moon, but this time for good, not just flags and footprints. Within this century, we'll see humans setting foot on Mars and we'll also see, most importantly of all, untold benefits back here on Earth, because the real reason we go into space is to improve the quality of life for everybody on this planet.
1: As well as trying to improve that quality of life on the planet, of course, we are trying to commercialize space as well. And when you commercialize space, uh, Dr. Bichel, that means you need regulation and you need laws. A lot of people will be very surprised that there is such a thing as space law.
2: Yes. uh, So space law, we have a set of international space law which is at the center is the Outer Space Treaty from 1967, currently signed by over 100 countries, including uh, the US, Russia, China, like, or every major spacefaring nation. And there are some uh, minor agreements that link to the treaty that have been also signed on the international level. Then there is a quite a substantial section of national space legislation, usually coherent to what the Outer Space Treaty sets out as basic principles. And an interesting thing is there are already commercial activities going on based on space law for decades, for example, telecommunications. Um, Most of Which is the big one. Yes. That's the moneymaker, to be fair. And uh, currently we see a huge interest also in additional commercialisation of uh, remote sensing data, of um, commercial mining activities. So the regulations are to a certain degree missing, the specialised regulations for these kind of activities.
1: Would it be fair to say that 1967 charter is basically there to um, facilitate peaceful exploration?
2: Yes, uh, it is referred to uh, exactly this phrase, uh, space should be used in, for peaceful purposes, whereas there is a, a, quite a discussion on what is peaceful and what is not, but in general, yes.
1: Mitch Hunter-Scullion, we're talking about satellites, commercial technology in space, but you're interested in getting the pit ponies up there with hard hats and pit props, because you're mining for asteroids. Now, excuse my ignorance, but tell me what that Involved?
3: Well, there are 18,000 near earth asteroids and over 4 million main belt asteroids in our solar system. And off-roads, approximately 4% are metallic asteroids, and off-roads, 4%, a quarter, so about 1% of total asteroids are high platinum bearing asteroids. So they're the ones which we have identified as being potentially viable candidates for mining. And obviously, we need metals on this planet, we need these sources. we we'll Platinum is a perfect example because we only mine 200 tons of platinum per year, um, purely due to the limitations on Earth. But in space, you do not have these same limitations. Um, for example, an average Earth mine can contain 15 parts per million of platinum, whereas some meteoric samples have shown up to 300 parts per million of platinum. So there is potentially orders of magnitude higher platinum to be found within an asteroid compared to on the Earth. Mm. And obviously, within an asteroid, you're not having to dig deep into the crust of a planetary body. Um, It can be found at surface level. It's not just minerals, though, is it? it? It's water as well. You have to first identify which asteroids are potentially valuable and where they are. And unless you can have some spectral classification of asteroids, which currently is very scant, then you're in a position when it's very difficult to even discover which asteroids would be valuable candidates for mining. So, what we're doing is we're developing a, the Asteroid Prospecting Satellite 1, which will go up into a low Earth orbit and will simply just look out into the solar system to identify viable candidates for asteroid mining.
1: And which countries are taking the lead in uh,
3: legal space mining? Oh, absolutely Luxembourg. Um, <laughs> Luxembourg is the global pioneer for space... Luxembourg? Law. Yeah, yeah. tiny Luxembourg. Um, but they are a head and shoulders above anyone else when it comes to sort of developing space resources from a national legal perspective. Um, so they have the Space spaceresources.lu initiative and the recently formed Luxembourg Space Agency has made space resources one of their main priorities as an agency.
2: The big issue in this regard is, is it legal? (laughs) And here we have different interpretations, and a strict interpretation of the Outer Space Treaty says no.
0: But Uh, there's also maritime law which governs where we go um, in space as well, so if you can get there and you can mine those resources, technically that is legal as well.
2: Okay, I don't want to go into too many legal details here. Um, Article 2 of the Outer Space Treaty says the National Appropriation um, by sovereignty, claim of use and occupation and by any other means is uh, prohibited. Well. But... But how but, do you
0: enforce that? How do you enforce th- that? that?
2: Let me just That's add that. one yes. thing to... And uh, the maritime uh, law uh, is focusing on just on sovereignty. It doesn't uh, focus on appropriation. And the second thing is the, it sets out the freedom for fishing, for example. Uh, the Outer Space Treaty doesn't set out like a freedom for... Resource exploitation and fishing is a renewable resource.
1: Well, you, you knew soon as the lawyers were involved, yeah. there would be some kind <laughs> of oh, yeah. uh, argument. There is a but let's go to something less contentious yeah. uh, and go to Leicester uh, and uh, pick up with uh, uh, Professor Anu Oja from the National Space uh, Academy. Uh, Dr. Oja, why do we need a National Space Academy?
4: Yeah, it's a really good question, Stephen, but uh, to answer it, if you'll forgive the the, the essay answer, I, I want to take a step back because when people ask me, what do you mean by space science? I say it's three simple parts. There's looking out there, astronomy, going out there, exploration, and the part that you've been talking about that so many people overlook the satellites that are looking back here at Earth because they are giving us the services that are absolutely fundamental to our 21st century way of life. Global telecommunications, increasingly internet satellite provision. And this is the part of the space sector that really makes money. It's $400 billion a year. That's the figure that we're approaching for 2019. It underpins nearly 20 percent of our global GDP when you look at these services. And as a sector, it's growing. Now, that's a tremendous success story, but we've got a real challenge because if we want to keep growing the space sector in this way, we need thousands or tens of thousands of new entrants coming in. That's just in the United Kingdom. And so the programme that I lead, the National Space Academy programme, is a skills development programme working with sort of secondary level and university students and their teachers, not only to teach them more about space science, but to enable them to navigate their way successfully into a sustainable career path. Is there a lot of room for cooperation with other countries? Absolutely. I mean, as a national programme, we're supported by the United Kingdom Space Agency, by UK government and a number of other entities from industry and academia. But we work internationally. We've had uh, a number of experiments on the International Space Station and and critically for us. And what's really interesting is the work that we've been doing with China. Um, I'm one of the leaders of the UK strategic programme of space science collaboration with China. About four years ago, China's government and China's National Space Administration were really interested in what we'd learned in our methodology for space education, began to partner with us, and we've seen a suite of activities now that's been growing and growing and growing in China. Um, and we see that this focus on education can not only help try to meet our skills requirements, it can build platforms for greater collaboration, greater scientific research as well. And so for the National Space Academy, our collaborative programs with China, in other countries, in developing countries, and of course, with the European Space Agency, are major foci for us.
1: Uh, Lastly, uh, Professor, uh, you talk about cooperation in the race to space. You're talking about collaboration, cooperation, not competition?
4: In the end, you you get a mixture of both, but what I'd like to point out is is, is one of my favourite pictures that I use in in, in my presentations, and it's a picture from 1997, and it's the US space shuttle Atlantis docking with the the Soviet-era Mir space station, and and that really was the beginning of the collaboration that led to the International Space Station. Now, wind four or back ten years before that picture was taken to 1987. If you'd have told me when I was an undergraduate that I would see a US space shuttle docking with a Soviet-era space station, I'd have said that's impossible. So what's interesting in terms of competition and collaboration is that we're in a rapidly changing geopolitical landscape, and there are new opportunities for collaboration. There will be competition, of course, and sometimes competition can be a great accelerator, but it's the collaborative framework of space science progress that we need to build on. And there is a lot more international collaboration than many people realise. So collaboration is the key for going forwards. Um, And and I think that the possibilities that we have from the discussion that I've been listening into, you know, I wouldn't say the sky is the limit, it's a bit of a cliche, (laughs) but there is tremendous scope for the future and challenges as well.
1: Thank you very much indeed. Uh, I, I'm never short of a cliché myself, but uh, the sky's the limit. Sarah Crudders, starting with you, final thoughts. I mean, what about my question very quickly, if you will, about um, so much collaboration between countries when we are talking about Britain, UK and China. Um, but there must be competition for the big prize in space. What would that be?
0: Well, again, the, you know, the sky is no longer the limit, actually, because, um, you know, we space is is limitless, so to speak. In terms of just quickly on collaboration, think about the International Space Station, nations which might not necessarily get on on Earth, for example, the U.S. and Russia working together in space. Actually, the International Space Station should really have a Nobel Peace Prize in terms of what it's able to do in uniting nations. Um, The competition is from business. Where there's money to be made, space has the potential um, to be a trillion-dollar industry. The first trillionaire um, will potentially come from data utilization back on Earth. So, the prize is a financial prize. Whether you like it or not, it's economics which drives forward innovation. Um, So, in terms of – the next step, well, there's multiple next steps. So let's stop thinking about the space race, about two superpowers going for the moon, and think about the idea of a Wild West. So there's the first human being on Mars, the first woman on the moon, first person to, or first country to potentially collaborate to um, answer that question, are we alone in the universe? But if there's one competition, that's a financial incentive. It's utilising space-based data. data's king when it comes to space.
1: You're never alone with a lawyer, Dr Bichel. So, Lots of room for, for new space laws. Um,
2: Yes and no. I mean, what we have right now on the international level already covers a lot. At the same time, what we need now is more specialized laws for the different activities that people want to engage in. And we have uh, made strides in this regard. So there's a lot of discussion, especially also on the legal mining side. Um, uh, There are workshops taking place with academics and so on to establish a foundation on which to build well, If we get there, that's the question. Cooperation will be the key because uh, we need international regulations. And for this, we need the states to get together and find a solution. The big problem is, compared to the 1960s where we had two superpowers who can lead, we uh, now have more a multitude of uh, voices.
1: And, and, and Mitch, the big prize in space for your mining company?
3: Um, the first person to own an asteroid will probably be one of the first billionaires on this planet um, I do agree with Sarah when she talks about how data utilisation is the key to being able to mine asteroids though or just to do anything in space because who owns the data is ultimately the person who has the most power and if you have that data then you can then action on that data to then look at which ones would be the most valuable asteroids the most valuable assets in space um, I think over the next sort of three to five years we will see that information and that data being much more widespread and commercialized. I think that will definitely be the first step towards developing a space mining industry. And that brings us
1: to the end of this edition of The Agenda. If you'd like to hear more from us, you can subscribe to iTunes, Stitcher or Spotify. You can also give us feedback with a review. Remember, you can also find The Agenda on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Just search for CGTN Europe. Until next time, goodbye. The most interesting questions. Are there other living beings beyond Earth?
3: Will man or machine be in charge?
1: Great question. Always have more than one answer. Well, hold on, uh, let me just draw up a list. And always come from more than one person.
2: That's where the credibility lies.
4: The concept of having a machinery which is alive and evolving didn't wait for us. The end of inequality of incomes and wealth around the world, can you imagine how difficult that is at the moment to achieve? Every episode, Stephen Cole, Murray Beveridge and some of the brightest minds out there shed light on the answers to some of the most intriguing questions.
1: There are two ways of looking at this. Machines can't really discriminate between civilian and military targets.
4: The Answers Project.
0: Maybe we need to just look at this in a bit more detail.
1: Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence.
4: The Answers Project, a new podcast from CGTN Europe.